Hey mate, Forty here. So Saturday Night Live came after a lot mask hard, and the most draw-dropping line, according to the news media, came when a comic named Michael Sheet said, uh, "Must attempt to buy Twitter outright shows how badly white guys want to use the N-word." Really? Is that why there's this 2015 energy in the room once again? that we, we might have some semblance of a restoration of free speech to Twitter? Is it is it just because white guys are just dying to use the N-word? I don't know about you, but I don't find that uh, white guys use the most racial slurs. In fact, in my experience, my limited experience, black guys use more racial slurs than any other group of which I'm aware, but pretty much all strongly identifying in-groups use racial slurs. So to me uh, on a scale of 1 to 100 with 100 being the most important Elon Musk buying Twitter so that uh, white guys can say the n-word would would rank about 0.5 in importance to me and frankly I don't see any difference between using the n-word and any other racial slur I'm not like horrified by the n-word I don't use it because I mean for many reasons I don't believe I've ever used it as a slur in my life I've only ever used it when I'm quoting or repeating something someone else has said or repeating a, a rap lyric. But God forbid I was to do that, I don't see it as any great sin. Why is it any worse than saying the K-I-K-E word for Jews or the S-P-I-C word for Hispanics or any other number of racial slurs? I'm not really sure it, that uh, any group benefits by, by giving the N-word this sacred status that just... Uh, you know, just supposed to be the, the most evil thing ever. I don't, I don't buy it. So uh, Richard Spencer is surprised that Elon Musk bought Twitter, and I am surprised that uh, Elon Musk pulled it off. So are the, uh, the crazy 2015, 2016 days of free speech on Twitter, are they back, or does Elon Musk have something else in mind? Facebook obviously became something much different as it went global. And um, I remember not being terribly interested in Twitter and thinking that it was kind of stupid to be, you know, tweeting about what you just ate or I'm, I'm going to the bathroom right now or something. But I did recognize Twitter and it is it is undoubtedly my favorite social network. I mean, I, you could say I'm an, an addict. I feel like I wouldn't really be up on the news without it. Um, I get my kind of daily feed of news from it. And it's not, but on, on some level, it's the most mainstream site. It's the heartbeat of the internet. That sounds like a cliche or a pitch slogan, but I think it's actually true. On some, on some level, it's the most mainstream site. And then on another level, it's a, it's a rather niche site. Um, Twitter... You know, whereas Facebook is for normies, let's be honest. Um, Twitter is for journalist, hot take artist, uh, people keeping up with the news. It's a rather niche when you know endlessly talk about Ukraine or whatever is happening. Um, it's also the site for press releases, for lack of a better word. There's a reason why Donald Trump, who had a huge you know personal fan base before he ran for president, but um, there's there's a, re a reason why it was so important in the Trump era. And you know, Trump was posting all this stuff on Facebook and Instagram and so on, but it, it really was Twitter where it happened. That's where it seemed real. That's what everyone would link to. And so on. And obviously, he's getting banned due to January 6th was, was hugely important. There's just something about Twitter that I don't think you can imagine the rest of the internet without it. And Facebook has a, has a cordoned off quality to it due, due to its design, its original design even, of mutual friends. Um, Twitter has a kind of press release or I want to say this to the world quality to it. And I think that Elon Musk grasped that and wants it to succeed. I mean, think about it this way. So Twitter has, according to Statistica, 76.9, let's call it 77 million users in the United States. It has some 60 million in Japan 
and then it just kind of goes down from there. Um, it is not a, you know, so it, it's roughly a third of the country has some connection to it. And when you go to other countries, it, it's less than that. Um, Facebook has a huge impact, um, more than 100 million more users in the United States. It has 330 million, I mean, there are 330 users in, in India, um, as many people as there are in the United States. Obviously, it's a country of, uh, what are they, roughly a billion. Um, but and even a, a, a social network like Snapchat. So Snapchat, I would say, has no effect on the culture, no effect on politics. Now, if you're a high schooler, you might love Snapchat. This is how this is how you use it. If you're whatever, you know, I, I mean, people obviously are using it, but I I don't think it really has the kind of impact it has. According to this is Omnicore. It has 320 million. That is 50 to 100 million more users than Twitter. And yet it has no impact culturally. Now, again, you could say it, it has a lot of impact in the sense it's being used or it's newsfeed or it's curated newsfeed is just god awful and it's, you know, subverting the minds of teenage girls. All of that is fair and true. But in terms of the wider cultural impact, I don't remember a single time that anyone linked to a snap from Donald Trump or anyone else. It, it just, it, it's a kind of subterranean site, whereas Twitter at its best is a public square. And I do think that that is how Elon Musk thinks of it. And I think that's a good thing. Now, another thing I would add to this. So I, I was just glancing at my feed before I did this. And I saw some things like, uh, what was it? Like election wizard who has 300,000 followers. I've never heard of this guy before, but he tweeted out, uh, you know, Rachel Levine and Leah Thomas are men. This is a fact. So people are kind of testing the boundaries. Um, now that Elon's in charge and that tweet was not banned for what it's worth. And that is people questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 election on Twitter for the first time in years and seeming to get away with it. So there already seem to be fairly dramatic uh, free speech improvements on Twitter, which I think is a good thing. Might have been banned a month ago. Um, that person is obviously a conservative of sorts. Um, I've seen a lot of enthusiasm and heard about it on the dissident right of like, you know, we can say the N-word again. At last, we're free. I don't see a whole lot of enthusiasm for saying the N-word again. I mean, very, very few people, only antisocial people are enthused about saying the N-word again. We've won. Um, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen again. Yeah, only losers think that we've won because we, we get to say the N-word if indeed we do on Twitter. I think that's that's a bizarre take. I don't buy it. I don't think that's really what's going on. Yes, you could probably tweet out something like, Rachel Levine is a man, that's just a fact. You, could, you, you will probably get away with that in a way that you might not have gotten away with it two months ago. Again, de, you know, get suspensions and deplatforming, it's all very the, the actual regime is very opaque you never know what is going to piss someone off but i don't think we're going to go back to an unregulated regime um the calls of russian disinformation from washington during the trump administration for what it's worth affected twitter the rise of the alt-right affected twitter i mean we had the um there was a twitter censor uh, board in 2016 that was had the adl involved that that certainly affected things just the amount of bots pu pushing out you know well we had the the major pushback on social media came post charlottesville so charlottesville was the major disaster for free speech on big tech there was a comprehensive dialing back of free speech after charlottesville crypto and you know nft scams and all of all kinds i mean that that is a real thing as well um i think elon probably does want more free speech i think elon musk probably does have some kind of libertarian conservative values that he does so what Elon Musk wants or what Joe Biden wants or what Donald Trump wants is one thing, but what they all have in common is they have to deal with reality. And the reality is that Twitter is a global business and that there are different standards of speech in different parts of the world. And Twitter right now makes most of its income from advertising. So even if Elon Musk is pretty close to a free speech absolutist, he still has to operate within reality.
tides back to turn the winds back. Right? Elon Musk is not the boss of Twitter. The situation is the boss of Twitter. And Elon Musk is part of the situation. He doesn't like the blue hair sensors ruining everything. Um, but I don't think, I think we passed a Rubicon in terms of the Wild West. And I think from what I can take from Elon Musk tweets on this matter, I think he cares about something a little bit different. So I don't think he is doing this. He's not investing 40 billion or whatever it is into, I want to allow. No sound. I see sound. My sound is coming through. Come on, man. All the 2015 alt-right to say, I want to allow them to say the N-word again. I do not think that's what he's interested in. I do not think he's interested in allowing harassment campaigns of female journalists or whatever. I don't, I don't think that any of that stuff is actually. And Elliot Blatt says, what does the permanent administrative state want? Well, it's not just one guy. It's not just one organization. It, it's not homogeneous, right? It's not unitary. The administrative state is a verbal shorthand for what exists in every advanced society. There is no other way to run an advanced society but with an administrative state. What the administrative state wants is going to vary depending on the situation. So after Chechens came into the United States and committed some terrorism, there wasn't much Chechen immigration to the United States, right? After 9-11, there were changes to homeland security, right? We even got a Department of Homeland Security. Getting on an airplane changed dramatically. So the deep state, the administrative state, they're not this all-powerful cabal. They're not unitary. They don't have one agenda. There are a bunch of people doing the best they can in changing circumstances. And depending on the situation, their priorities are changing. Actually going to fly. I think that's going to get banned just as sure as it was banned yesterday. Uh, from what I can glean that he wants is that he has an ideal of authenticating all humans. And, you know, he, he tweeted again uh, before he made, before or after he made his first investment where he bought 10% of the company, he tweeted something to the effect of, you know, why don't we authenticate people? Why don't we get blue check marks to everyone who buys the Twitter, what is it, Twitter Blue, I think it is, where you pay a little bit more and you get some extra features. Yeah, it's uh, $3 a month for Twitter Blue. Does anyone here have Twitter Blue? I don't see the benefits yet. He is less interested in verifying reporters for BuzzFeed than he is in verifying the humanity of users and verifying people who are actually, you know, putting money over the barrel to support the company. And, I, you know, he's a businessman, but I also think he cares about this. So, again, I remain a skeptic, but I do think that Elon, you know, he is a real human being. And okay, great. Elon's a real human being. It, it wouldn't necessarily cut down on disinformation, but it would make people responsible for disinformation and just stupidity. Yeah, so Richard Spence is now very much against trolling and anonymity. So you, you will likely make fun of me for the way I often start my shows, particularly my, my solo shows, just, just talking to my, my iPhone with a reflection on some, you know, some craziness in my past or some bad behavior in my past or some unfortunate tendencies in my past or some compulsive or addictive pattern in my past. So I find that beginning from a place of admitting my own brokenness, admitting the mess that I've created in my own life, that kind of centers me in a good place to begin commenting on you know, everybody else. And before making grand pronouncements on, on life and the world, I, I like to start from the place of my own brokenness. So Richard Spencer's highly opposed to trolls now and highly opposed to anonymity online because now anonymity online and trolls are 98% against him. So when Richard in 2015 and 2016 felt like a king of the troll army, when anonymity online was generally speaking working in Richard Spencer's favor, then he didn't really have a problem with it. So uh, Richard seems to lack introspection. Yeah, I think part of his change is that he's grown older and wiser. Part of his change is that he's been 
humiliated part of his change is that trolls and anonymous accounts are you know doing their best to wound him but you know what about all the innocent people who were wounded in richard spencer's charge of 2015 2016 encouraging you know, gratuitous cruelty by anonymous trolls online that is you saying it you can't just go spin up yet more accounts and start tweeting about all sorts of nonsense you have to actually take responsibility for what you say and face the music i think that's a good thing yeah, I don't recall Richard saying this in 2015, 2016. Um, the alt-right of 2016, 2015 probably would have been impossible without an anonymity. It wasn't just me. I spoke to the media. And... So in 2015, 2016, Richard Spencer was widely regarded as the leader of the alt-right. Now more than 95% of the alt-right seems to hate Richard Spencer. So maybe that change in situation, maybe that change in the power dynamic uh, plays a role in Richard Spencer's positioning himself in a different way did you know performances of sorts on stage at colleges but the all the alt-right felt like something powerful felt like something powerful and was making headlines all on its own due to the fact that it had so much energy and numbers and, and part of the energy was because of anonymity anonymity in and of itself is not good or bad i'm not opposed to anonymity i'm not pro anonymity anonymity comes with huge upsides it comes with huge downsides I am for constructing incentives to try to maximize the good that anonymity provides and to try to minimize the the downside of anonymity. So Richard is now very opposed to anonymous people getting to post online. I'm not opposed. I'm not supporting. I think it's morally neutral. It's, it's like a cell phone. Anonymity online can be used for good or for evil. And it couldn't have happened without anonymity. That being said, don't you think that the alt-right ultimately faded out and collapsed due to anonymity? Yeah, it faded out and collapsed in large part due to your bad behavior and your bad direction so that people who weren't anonymous could not associate with it. Why is it that any decent person cannot associate with the alt-right? Probably at least 50% of the reason is Richard Spencer, right? So that's why I like to start so many of my shows with some introspection, some acknowledgement of my own brokenness, some acknowledgement of the destructive compulsive patterns that I've, I've often been enmeshed in with acknowledgement of the things that I struggle with. So as someone who's been a blogger since 1997, I unfortunately, I played a role in hurting some innocent people with some shoddy writing, with some inaccurate writing, with some unfair writing through the unfair use at times of anonymous sources where it wasn't in the public good. So to some extent, I have encouraged my own destructive anonymous troll army online. And uh, like Richard, I'm, I'm growing older and wiser. It's, it would descend into hive mind thinking. It would descend into nonsense. It would descend into textbook harassment and lawbreaking. It was ultimately about people who never... Right. So who, who, who would imagine that a group led by someone who wants to invoke the Nazis would uh, appeal to antisocial people, right? Richard Spencer went about... ...appeal to antisocial people, right? People have all sorts of darkness inside of them, particularly shut-ins, particularly people who, who aren't married, who don't have kids, who don't have jobs with a high income, a high responsibility. Much of the crowd that Richard Spencer appealed to was already predisposed to acting out online and in real life in an antisocial manner, and he accelerated their destruction. Now, Richard Spencer was not operating in a vacuum. He, too, was encouraged and debauched and deteriorated 
by Donald Trump's approach, right? Donald Trump had an effect on our society. In some ways, I think the effect was great. In other ways, the effect was negative. I think Donald Trump was great because he's done more than any president since Eisenhower to reduce immigration, particularly, well, to reduce immigration, all right? So Trump has done a lot of great things. He, he said some tough truths out loud, right? But he also coarsened the discourse. Never had, don't have the courage of their convictions and aren't really willing to stand behind what they say and take responsibility for it. That's a huge problem. And that is a cement ceiling on any movement. And, in and it's a lot easier to stand behind what you say when you're a trust fund kid, when you have a family that's going to pick you up and, and support you and give you a place to stay in Montana when, when things get tough. Right? A lot harder to stand behind edgy words when you're just struggling for, for survival. And Richard Spencer made it impossible for any normie to have any affiliation with the alt-right through his own antisocial behavior and antisocial language. Anonymity. It's a double-edged sword. Um, after living through this experience, to be frank, I think getting rid of anonymity would be a good thing. Yeah, so when it, anonymity comes back to bite Richard's ass, now he's opposed to anonymity. But think about the hundreds of people who are damaged by the anonymous troll storms that Richard Spencer probably played some role in instigating. The, the antisocial behavior online and online. Uh, it would be a good thing in terms of your right to speak in the digital public square, but I think it would also be a good thing in taking responsibility for what you say. So, as you can tell, I think it's a complicated issue, but I am... ...that subscribers will enjoy, so I'm going to try to be doing these. And it's something that makes the public sphere really unworkable. So, first off, a bad thing, actually, but um, I did want to talk a little bit about Elon Musk and Twitter, and why anonymity is a bad thing, actually. And it's something that makes the public sphere really unworkable. So first off, as I am sure you know, Elon Musk is attempting to buy Twitter. So uh, two weeks ago, let's say, he bought 10% of Twitter shares. He made a very heavy investment, and there was talk of him joining the board. And he was more or less welcomed onto the board. Uh, I noted the CEO was happy about it. Jack Dorsey, who's of course no longer the CEO, was happy about it. Um, but the, he ran into the problem of being a, you know, contrarian. When Richard was working his way to the top of his little sphere, right, he wanted free speech. He wanted robust discussion. Then when people reach a position of authority or of achievement or of fame, then they generally tend to want to reduce free speech, to reduce the boundaries of what is acceptable discourse. So Richard fought his way up by pushing the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Now he's achieved his infamy. He wants to narrow the range of acceptable discourse. Libertarian uh, blabbermouth on the platform. He was willing to criticize the platform itself, and you can't have a board member doing that. Um, so that fell through, and that seemed to be somewhat mutual uh, in agreement. But then, uh, about a week ago, Elon Musk decided that he was just going to buy the whole damn thing and take it private and offer some $43 billion to just buy all of the shares uh, at a price that's a bit discounted from where it has been, but certainly at a very reasonable price. And uh, this, of course, created a tumult in the media. There were claims.
And Chris Alton makes a great point in the chat. Uh, blaming Richard and Hellgate for the trajectory of the online alt-right is Luke's go-to. I must have heard him say this 500 times by now. Well, if I refer to Richard Spencer's commentary 500 times since then, and he never references his own role in his own troubles and the troubles of the political movement that he he was the leader of, when, when Richard speaks but doesn't provide any context of his own role in these things, then yes, where there is no man, let me be a man, let me step up and remind people of that context, right? That, you know, how can we allow this fascist to do this to our favorite journalist-friendly media platform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go into that. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy and, um, and so on. But one thing that has interested me, Elon has, has made some criticisms about Twitter that are either, you know, passe or maybe a bit goofy or things like that, edit button and so on. But he actually said something that I think is actually powerful. He did it in these short little tweets that he put up a few hours ago. Uh, this is, I guess, nine hours ago now. So in the... Uh, so when you don't have power, you want room to roam. You want to expand the realm of acceptable discourse. It's like terrorism. Okay. Powerful nation states, generally speaking, don't engage in terrorism. Terrorism is, is what groups do who don't have a nation state, who don't have that kind of power that goes with having an official nation state, an official military. And so terrorism is a way to try to even the, the power equation. And so too with discourse, right? Those who want the edgiest social commentary, those who want the most freedom, generally speaking, in what you can say on Twitter and on social media, generally have the least to lose, right? This is the approach of those who are fighting their way up towards power. Then once you get power, then you want to kind of slam the doors on everyone else and limit discourse, limit the range of acceptable discussion. It's like with immigration. I am an immigrant to the United States, but uh, once I get here, once I become an American citizen, within a few years, I'm I thinking, hey, we need to severely limit immigration to the United States. It's just like if I meet a woman and I fall in love with her, I don't want other guys dating her. I don't want other guys boinking her. All right. I find something good. I want to protect it. In the afternoon, if our Twitter bid succeeds, we will defeat the spam bots or die trying. And he followed that up and authenticate all real humans. Very interesting. Obviously, spam bots are something that was not really taken for. It was not really taken seriously. I've I've been inspired by Elon Musk. I have come to despise spam bots, so I disconnected Nightbot from from my chat. So, do you miss Nightbot? Or are you surviving without Nightbot making his uh, his repetitive comments every hour? Uh, even a decade ago, and I don't think it was taken seriously enough during the kind of Wild West period of social media when you could more or less post anything you wanted. And maybe they were taken overly seriously by some people during the 2016 and 2020 election when, you know, anything that they don't, anything liberals don't like that gets promoted on Twitter becomes, you know, oh, it's a Russian bot or something like that. And, you know, that kind of language, obviously, it can be shrill, it can be stupid, it can be hypocritical, sure, but it's actually not fundamentally wrong. And this is something that I didn't take seriously enough during 2016, uh, it's something that's very real. and Right, you didn't take it seriously enough because the extent that there were these things, there were disruptions that aided your quest for power. Important, and I'm glad that Elon Musk is talking about it. Now, perhaps one of the more benign ways that these bots manifest themselves is to, you know, promote a product or something, you know, buy this uh, moisturizer cream or whatever. You know, you don't really want that on your platform. You don't want that spamming up people's feeds, but it maybe isn't the worst thing in the world. 
There's no doubt. So you'll now hear Richard Spencer decry the pollution of the public square. So when Richard was on his way up, he was quite happy to be in the middle of feces throwing, right? That, that's not unique to Richard. That's what people who are out of power, they're willing to do things that people in power are not so willing to do. Now, I don't give spam bots the same power that Richard Spencer does because spam bots can't take you anywhere that you don't want to go. All right. We did not evolve to be gullible. That you can affect voter behavior, you can affect consumer behavior. No, you can't affect voter behavior and consumer behavior substantially with spam bots. Right? They, they may move the needle by, I would wager, less than 0.1%. Right? We did not evolve to be gullible. And we did not evolve to question our own thinking. Right? We evolved very powerful cognitive powers to find the mistakes and the flaws and the disadvantages in other people's thinking. But we did not evolve to apply that skepticism to our own thinking because it's not evolutionarily adaptive to be going around in, in deep introspection and questioning our first principles. But it is evolutionarily adaptive to go around with a sizable amount of suspicion when anyone else is trying to change our mind about something. Right? When someone else is trying to manipulate us, when someone else is trying to persuade us, it's to our evolutionary advantage to have considerable skepticism. And we evolved brains that do just that. You can, in effect, brainwash someone through spam bots. And this can be done clumsily, and it can also... That's nonsense. You can't brainwash anyone through spam bots. It did not evolve to be gullible. ...be done quite accurately, especially when it's done on, on Facebook in particular, which is a different platform. Obviously, it's very similar in many ways, but, but fundamentally different. When people can recognize who you are by what you do and what you consume. So, you know, we know that you are a middle-aged white guy in the Midwest who's a boating enthusiast and uh, purchases beef jerky on occasion. All of that kind of thing can be discovered. Actually, grocery stores have been doing this for a very long time. They see your churn and what you buy and so on. And you can create a kind of personal profile of someone. And you can also maybe predict who this person's going to vote for. That Midwestern white guy in the Midwest who likes voting is probably a Trump supporter. High percentage chance that he is. And you can also kind of get at his hopes and dreams and fears and fantasies and phobias, etc. And you can nudge him in certain directions through creating fake news pages on Facebook, through subtle kind of ad engineering. So he, he buys into this, you know, this whole thing that, uh, that spam bots and, and, you know, Russian propaganda and, and the Internet is essentially Richard Spencer is telling us that the Internet is radicalizing our youth and we need to clean up the public square. We need to decry this pollution in the public square that that's where he's at now in free speech directly immediately uh, that you are unpersoned when you're thrown off um the other thing i hear which i think is equally wrong though wrong in a different way is kind of like fuck you i can just say whatever the hell i want and i have some weird uh you know frog avatar and i that that pretty much summarizes a lot of your behavior, Richard, in 2015, 2016, 2017. And, hey, it summarizes a lot of my behavior, too, between, say, uh, 1997 and then steadily declining after 1999. So it wasn't such so prominent after about 2005, I would say, in my life. Do some, you know, alt-right 2016 or, like, quasi 
neo-Nazi nonsense and I harass female journalists and I, you know, drop in bombs left and right. And, you know, I, I'm just a, basically a malcontent on this platform. Well, I think that's also equally wrong. And one way of cracking this nut is for there to be an elaborate censoring regime. And we have situations like the Hunter Biden laptop where Twitter, I mean, somewhat successfully uh, censored that news story. Now, everyone ultimately heard about it and there was a bit of a Streisand effect around it. And I think even Jack Dorsey has acknowledged that this was not a good way of handling the situation, but it was a remarkable achievement in censorship, if you want to use that type of language. Right. So there is something to be said if people can't be anonymous in, in a particular space that in and of itself ensures certain levels of decorum, right? If you do have to stand behind your words in the real world, that is going to affect how you conduct yourself. So, so there's certainly a place in, in some forums for removing anonymity. Exactly he meant by this. Maybe he's kind of expressing an intention and not, as Elon Musk said. That is that, and I, you know, again, we don't quite know what exactly he meant by this. Maybe he's kind of expressing an intention and not an, a policy, but making someone ultimately take responsibility for what they're saying. When you enter the physical public realm and you hold up a placard, you, you, you have the right to say whatever, but you do have to take responsibility for it. And I, and I think an activist for, for, for the most part do. And it is always remarkable. I mean, this goes back to my journal entry from the other night. I, I just find it remarkable when people like libs of TikTok want to have it both ways. That is, they want to go out and be an influencer and get a hugely, hugely popular account and be in contact with all these politicians and journalists. But then they, you know, don't dox me, bro. Everybody wants to have it both ways. We all want the good sides of, say, being on YouTube, being on social media, uh, being an activist, right? Everybody wants it both ways, right? People want the good sides with doing the things that they like to do, and they don't want the downsides. So libs of TikTok is no different. Now, the Washington Post chose to link and to highlight right, a, a page that listed the libs of TikToks, not, not just a real name, which... I have no problem with the Washington Post revealing a real name, but they chose to link and highlight her home address, right? That is doxing, and, and that is a problem. On the other hand, that page listing her, her home address was for her real estate uh, license. Uh, surely she could have done better, right? Surely she could have made a better choice. Did she really have to put her home address on her real estate license page? And I remember when Ben Shapiro complained about Breitbart doxing him because they linked to his California State Bar page where Ben Shapiro listed his home address, right? You choose to list your home address publicly on the internet, then that's in large part on you, not on the media organization that links to it. Now, I don't like media organizations and finding, finding out a home address and, and linking to it. I, I blame them as well. But the individual who makes that possible also deserves some blame. Well, if you take part in politics, you're going to get doxxed. And you're, there's a lot more that's going to happen than just doxing. You're going to get criticized. You're going to get attacked unfairly. I mean, look, I'm just telling you my story. But <laughs> enough about me. See, this is still Richard's perspective that most of the attacks on him are unfair. Rather than Richard saying, by my choices, by my behavior, and by my words, I created a situation in which myself and a lot of other people would come under withering attack. And this was because I gratuitously riled that up. I gratuitously incentivized my opponents to take action against my side. I fired up my opponents 
1,000 times as much as I fired out my side. And that was a strategic and a social and a moral bad choice on my part. When Richard starts speaking this way, we know that he's learned something profound and that, uh, that there may be some hope. The fact is, if you enter the forum, you forego anonymity. You have become a public figure of some kind, and you need to take on that responsibility. Authenticating humans, all real humans, as opposed to unreal humans, authenticating on all real humans would be a very good thing. And I think it would be good for the platform. Um, it would give peace of mind to people. It would force trolls to take responsibility for what they're saying. Um, and again, we don't know what this means. Now, does this mean that all real humans get a blue check mark? So if you prove that you exist and you're a citizen, you get a blue check mark? Or is it that, uh, but then there are also a lot of anonymous accounts? Or is it, another way of cracking that nut, is that you are entitled to some kind of account. And so as a citizen of the United States, I am entitled to a Twitter account. And maybe if I have a business, I could have another one. Maybe I could have two or whatever, but you're you entitled to something. And that means, again, that you have to take responsibility for what you say. Entitled to something. This is the language of rights that I don't really resonate with. To me, all rights are conditional. They're all situational. And whatever rights that you can be afforded depend on the situation and on the situation of your group. I don't view us as primarily individuals born into the world with rights. I understand the world as people are born into it, members of a tribe. And whatever rights that that tribe can afford will vary on circumstance. So I primarily view the world in terms of nations or tribes rather than in terms of, you know, individual human liberties. And respond to. But I don't feel sorry for this woman who has been, quote, doxxed, end quote. It's not exactly This true. is Richard Spencer. On and I also TikTok. think we should go a little bit deeper and think about the kind of discourse and uses and abuses of sites like this. So let me talk about that first issue first, about how I don't quite feel sorry for this woman. Um, she is apparently a Orthodox Jewish real estate agent from Brooklyn. And she is one of the millions, or she was rather, one of the millions of anonymous conservative Twitter accounts. Uh, reading the story in the Washington Post by Taylor, Taylor Lorenz, which was published today and has been one of the major stories on Twitter all day. Um, she started out doing the typical conservative stuff of 2020 and beyond, talking about Stop the Steel, talking about COVID, etc. Uh, she didn't get a lot of traction doing that. She was one of the millions putting up more or less the same. Like, like Richard Spencer wanted to be an actor. Didn't really work out. Richard Spencer wanted to be a theater director. Didn't really work out. Richard Spencer wanted to take an academic approach to political issues. Didn't get a lot of traction. Richard Spencer found his mate here in live streams and podcasts. Content. Uh, you can tell that she was trying to do the thing where you become a novelty account. <laughs> and, you know, these novelty accounts, I, I remember from back in uh, 2016 or 2017 when Trump first came into office, it, there were these accounts like the, the unauthorized State Department or various Trump parodies, you know, Trump tweeting from his toilet or something. And it kind of sounds like Trump, but it's all fun. And it's all, of course, demeaning. Um, that's what the purpose of parody is for. Um, and she, so she started an account as Joe Biden's houseplant. Uh, <laughs> seems fairly amusing, but it didn't go anywhere. But uh, a little over a year ago, things really took off with the libs of TikTok account. She found the perfect novelty handle. And she also, I guess, tapped a resource that wasn't being fully tapped. I don't use TikTok. I don't look at TikTok. She didn't find a handle, and that's what led to millions of people following her. She found a niche, a valuable niche. So it wasn't just a handle. It was a whole concept. And then she put in a lot of hard work and made some pretty good choices that, that maximized the 
the appeal of what she was doing. Talk. Millions of people do, of course, and it seems to be just such an easy vlogging platform, easier to vlog there than it is on YouTube and so on. And it's all short and horizontal video. It's, that, it, it just, it's perfect for our you know, low attention span, um, little effort content. And uh, it's probably most famous for you know, people lip syncing. Why do Zoomers do this? I don't know. Why do nurses feel the need to do this? I do know. Uh, <laughs> I won't go into nurses. Why do people do this? Because people like attention. I like attention. Richard Spencer likes attention. Now, liking attention in and of itself is morally neutral. All right? Your like for attention can lead you to doing antisocial, maladaptive, self-harming, antisocial, you know, morally destructive things. Or it can lead you to do morally uplifting things, pro-social things, and adaptive things, things that are good for you. So Richard Spencer, overall, his thirst for fame has led him on a destructive path. It's almost destroyed him. It certainly destroyed the lives of a lot of people near to him. Um, so she was finding all of these testimonial videos on TikTok from crazy liberals. And maybe even liberal is not the right word. And maybe even leftist isn't the right word. It's, it's a lot of people who are pretty messed up. And I can remember one in particular. And I can't quite remember the details, but I do remember the look in this woman's eyes. It was just a, a crazed look of psychopathy. <laughs> not diagnosing anyone or making any accusation. That was just simply my impression. And it was basically about a not even kindergarten. It was a preschool teacher who happened to be, by the way, a preschool teacher at a private school, not a public school. Uh, and she was talking, you know, we're talking about sex with your children. We're talking about gender. You know, we talk about all sorts of different identities. And look, it's creepy. You don't even have to be a parent to say it's highly creepy. And there's some way in which this does push our buttons for conservatives. It's a sense of loss of innocence. It's an, an attack on children for, for liberals just by the fact that Libs of TikTok did get banned and just by the fact that it's being reported. Right. It, it did get banned by, by Twitter for, for a while. So... It, it's been another victim of of this uh, oppressive you know, big tech uh, crackdown on, on free speech. So it, it's hard not to have some sympathy for it. And what if it turns out that Elon Musk was inspired to buy Twitter because Twitter banned the Babylon Bee? It's good to see the Babylon Bee is back. Was absolutely influential. Uh, she's featured on Tucker. She's featured on Joe Rogan. She's featured on um, conservative talk radio. She was probably driving a lot, um, maybe not causing, but kind of you know, creating an account that was really good fodder uh, for the anti-CRT protests at school board meetings for the, uh, you know, uh, gubernatorial election. So, iron law of life, if you hurt people, they will push back. And it's not always wrong to hurt someone, right? So I think overall that what the libs of TikTok account does is great. I think it's good for America. But certain groups, certain individuals are hurt by it. When you hurt people, they will push back. That's how the world works. If you don't want to get hurt, if your recovery is fragile, then try to minimize the amount that you hurt people. But once you start hurting people, even if you're in the right, right, they will hurt you back. Right? You don't get to save America. You don't get to be a cultural hero. You don't get to change the political trajectory of a state or of a country or of a community without paying a price for it. Virginia for the upcoming midterms. I mean, she was absolutely doing it. And, and attacking this account does, whatever you want to think about it, does affect uh, GOP electioneering. So she did seem innocent. But to be honest, if you play this game, if, if you're simply, if you have a Facebook account and you're tweeting about recipes and posting pictures of your children, yes, I do find it creepy, unnecessary, bizarre, immoral if someone posts your name. And the Washington Post chose to highlight and post a link to her home address, right? To me, that's unacceptable. To me, that's really bad behavior. I have never, ever, ever consciously chosen to link 
or to post to someone's home address. I have, I think once I posted some legal documents that contained a home address and I, I regret that. And at least links to places where people could figure out where you live. Yes, absolutely. But that's not what happened. Um, first off, this woman, Miss Rachik, wrote about her identity on her Twitter, public Twitter account, like we all do. I'm sure if you scan my Twitter account, you could kind of figure out more or less where I live, what I'm doing. Um, she did that, and that has been revealed. Uh, but secondly, she played this game. And if you're going to enter the arena, you can no longer you know, whine about being an innocent person who's docked by the evil left. And there's a lot to that. I, I primarily agree with what Richard's saying here. I don't believe it should be socially acceptable or journalistically acceptable to highlight someone's home address, right? I, I think the Washington Post definitely crossed the line there. But there's always going to be pushback when you hurt individuals and hurt groups, hurt communities, even when you're overwhelmingly in the right, even when you're fighting on the side of the angels, if you hurt other people, they are always going to hurt you back. Uh, they're not just out there doxing happy housewives for the hell of it, who vote Republican or like Trump or who, or so on. They're voting people who are playing the game, and she was. And when you play the game, you take some hits. And so this notion of harassment against Taylor Lorenz and the Washington Post is strange. And It's not strange because Taylor Lorenz and the Washington Post chose to publish this woman's home address. Right? Most normal people are revolted by that. Okay, so I was inspired to do a 50-minute talk this morning uh, listening to a lecture by licensed clinical social worker Donna Bevan Lee on self-esteem. And you think, 40, that's the lamest thing ever. Well, just give it, give it two minutes. When you have a conversation, before you have a conversation with anyone, before you look at somebody in the car next to you that you don't even know who they are, you have to determine, am I better than or am I less than them? Right. So I spent much of my life stuck in that kind of thinking. Am I better than or worse than someone else? I didn't choose to live this way. It sucks to live this way. It did me and other people no favors to live this way. But I would I would assume that most people who are live streamers have lived this way, that uh, it seems the overwhelming results of live streaming seem to be negative for people's lives. And so people are engaged in frequently in this maladaptive behavior out of a compulsion to cry, try to create this imaginary superior self online because their real life self is so disappointing. So all day long, I'm walking around. Okay, now I'm at, I'm going to check out the grocery line. Am I better than her? Am I less than her? Am I better than him? Am I less than him? I got to do this all day in order to determine where I step in and feel myself engaged. My value relies on how I feel that I am in relationship to that person there. Right. You see this in most fights between live streamers, that they measure their value in comparison to Ethan Ralph, in comparison to PPP, in comparison to Richard Spencer or to Greg Johnson or to Nick Fuentes. All right. These fights by, by the dissident right you know, tend to be over such you know, trivial Oh, you know, this is how my life is better than your life, and this is why I'm superior to you because you've got cancer. Super chat from the Mighty Puck 75. He says, Moldbug stuck with ideas and writing, avoided the lure of power, and as such destruction, he's engaged, according to Vanity Fair. Why the hate? Well, yeah, Moldbug did not engage in the the trash talking and, and the gutter behavior of a Nick Fuentes or a Richard Spencer. So Moldbug has 
generally speaking, operate at a fairly elevated level, and the responses to mold bug have similarly been at a fairly elevated level. We have a profound effect on how other people react to us. So to the extent that I don't understand hating mold bug, I just haven't found benefit for time if I've invested in either reading him, reading about him, or, or listening to him. As most uh, autodidacts, most self-taught people I've known, he seems to have an exaggerated sense of his own learning. If I'm better than them, I have more value. If I'm less than them, I have less value. And then my, my interaction with them will be based on that. That's not self-esteem. It's not even other esteem, because they don't even know they're in on it. <laughs> you know, other esteem is, well, how do you feel about me? You know, and then they tell you. This is so Moldbug's main thing is that we need a monarchy, that we need a CEO, and we need an autocracy. We need an authoritarian government, and we need to get away from democracy, and uh, democracy is meaningless, and there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. And I just think that's... Uh, a useless direction. It's just uh, intellectual masturbation, and it doesn't contribute much to understanding reality. But on the other hand, in certain contexts, I, I think he would probably be an engaging uh, dinner party guest. I think there'd be certain times and places where it might be fun listening to him. He certainly loves the sound of his own voice. So I usually prefer that my, my girlfriends talk a lot more than I do, and I often just like listen enjoy listening to them just chatter away. It's just everything you're making up in your head. So not only is it, is it happening and they don't know it, you've got to figure it out. Are they better than me? Are they less than me? And I'm going to... So if you're going through life thinking, are they better than me or are they less than me? You've got a problem. And that's how I've gone through almost all of my life. But the happier I am, usually the less need I have for that kind of comparison thinking. But that should be a tip-off. If you're going through life that way, that's a big problem, and you're highly vulnerable to making maladaptive decisions and falling into addictions. Determine that based on crap I'm making up, okay? So I'm making up... Right, so if you have this mindset, are they better than me, are they less than me, you are very susceptible to making things up to try to elevate your, your false sense of self. You're very likely to seize onto a false sense of self which other people then will take great pleasure in puncturing and humiliating you. And so you see this with live streamers, just you know, an unbelievable level of self-destructiveness. I mean, did not PPP like spread his ass cheeks, you know, on, on stream.me and do, you know, all sorts of you know, absolutely ridiculous and humiliating things. Uh, live streamers you know, are known for making these, you know, antisocial maladaptive, you know, incredibly self-destructive decisions in the, in a vain effort to get more views. Well, Andy Worski like burning, you know, setting fire to to his nipple. Because when you have this this algorithm running through you, are they better than me? Are they less than me? You'll be overwhelmingly compelled to alter, move outside of reality and and lose touch with reality, increasingly live in a fantasy world where, you know, you're just so awesome despite all real science to the contrary. That they think that because I have this red wallet that I must be poor. So if I have this red wallet and I must be poor, then they think they're better than me. So then I take my wallet, put it down here so that they can't see it and then I'll be ashamed of it. When do you have time to eat? <laughs> God, let alone sleep. 
This happens when you have these issues. You may not know it. Oh, here's a news flash for you, though. In order to get better, you have to become aware. <laughs> so get aware. Be aware of when you are just in people's presence. Think, you know, find yourself, am I doing that now? Right, and the solution to, to this kind of problem is instead looking for what do I have in common with other people? So instead of bemoaning, now, or the Chinese people that you have to work around, or all the blacks or Jews or Christians or evangelicals or Mormons or Latinos that you have to work around, instead of bemoaning that, maybe think instead, what do I have in common with these other people and build off those commonalities, right? That is a path to greater success in life, greater competence in life, more happiness in life. You'll be more in reality this way. You'll feel less alienated from other people. So find your common connections with others rather than fixating on how am I better than or worse than others. And here is a down and dirty way to deal with this first issue. It's just you can do this. Find out. Say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to find out what I have in common with them. I'm just going to think about what we have in common based on facts. We're both adults. Okay, there we go right there. Say, we both have short hair. There's another one. So now I'm not even thinking about, am I better than or less than? Okay, so that's the first. I mean, this is what self-esteem. It's not like, oh, I have bad self-esteem. Or I have, you know, I, it's kind of an oxymoron to even say bad self-esteem. So you have self-esteem or you don't have self-esteem, or you don't have it, right? But... This is one, you can't do this on its own. I mean, you can start to say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to identify the commonalities I have with people so that I'm not bouncing myself all over town every time I run into somebody and interact with somebody. So the next core issue is reality. Now, I know, and you've, many of you have heard me say these things before, so just bear with me. Many people with greater minds than mine have tried to identify reality. <laughs> and I'm going to do my best and just say that reality is how you look. So this woman is a cancer survivor. She went through some horrible amounts of chemo. What you're doing, what you're thinking, or what you're feeling. Now... If you don't know this part about yourself, how can you have self-esteem? If I don't know what I'm doing, if I don't know what I'm thinking, if I don't know what I'm feeling, if I don't know what I'm, what, how I appear in the world, all right, how am I going to know anything about myself? So I need to pay attention to this. And I'll tell you, you know, I have these little quick ways to just deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. And this one about reality, take the words, I don't know, out of your vocabulary now. Okay, so she, she says when someone asks you, how are you doing, you know, force yourself to, to reach for a real answer. Don't just uh, settle for saying, oh, I don't know. So she's got... A lot of resources here on her website. Donna, uh, 
Bevan Lee, PhD. And she's got a talk this here. This morning, on you heard me uh, talk about and allude to the connection between addiction. Self esteem. If you don't get that coming back to you, you didn't get the self esteem. What you did was that when it wasn't coming to you, you said, What do I need to do to get that? Right? So that there is the answer to why do people live stream, right? That's the dominant answer for why I'm doing this why other live streamers are doing what they're doing and why all sorts of people are doing, you know, maladaptive or antisocial or unnecessarily risky things because they didn't get that love, right? They, they didn't see a look of joy when they were an infant or, or a young child and they were looking at their parents or adults or caretakers. They didn't see love and joy uh, smiling back at them. I, I grew up in foster care. Now, something got broken. I remember when I came to America at age 11, the number one thing people said about me is he's insecure. I never heard that word because we weren't as psychologically sophisticated in Australia. But uh, once I got to California at age 11, everyone was saying he's insecure. So what does an insecure person do? He looks for ways to get love. And coming from a somewhat desperate, needy place, right? most of one's choices from this place are going to be maladaptive. They're not going to work out very well. And when you do find something that temporarily fills you up, you're likely to engage in it to excess, whether it's love addiction, porn addiction, uh, food addiction, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, right? So most live streamers are coming from this place of didn't get the love, didn't, didn't see the joy when they were kids, and now feeling dysregulated, maladaptive, meaning not at ease, not, not happy with themselves. They have to create this altered state, enter the cyber world where you can create this imaginary, super powerful, you know, grandiose personality who's constantly thinking about how am I better or worse than other live streamers? This is the psychology of the live streamer. This is the psychology of the addict. This is the, the psychology of probably a third of people in the Western world. Okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? How can I be perfect? Oh, and if I'm not perfect, I'll never be good enough. Any perfectionists in the room? <laughs> okay, now you know. It wasn't coming to you. I got to do it better. I got to do it perfect. If it's not perfect, it's not good enough. I'm trying to determine based on my anticipation of those parents' reaction to me. Based on that anticipation, I have to decide what I need to do next to get that positive coming. If you grow up in an unsafe family... You All right, that's, that's why people live stream right there. What do I need to do to get some love coming my way? You are always anticipating what your parents' next feeling would be. So you're always anticipating what someone's next feeling would be. It reminds me a little bit of an Elliot Blatt. I mean, this guy has empathy just off the charts. He has empathy just bouncing off the walls. And then two things happen. One is that you would try and figure out how to get that to change and make it better. The other thing that happened was that you started to mirror that and you would start to have the same reaction that they did. So that pretty soon, again, your brain is doing this. You're cycling through a, 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 a cycle of emotional Right. It's about fundamentally being ill at ease with yourself, just feeling like you're not enough, feeling unhappy, feeling angry, lonely, tired, 
and and looking for, for something that has reliably made you feel better in the past. And you know, something's coming up for them to gamble. And then sex, oh, don't get me started here, but I will. <laughs> okay, sex addiction. When I was a young therapist back in the early 70s, it, the word didn't exist, okay? All these other things, yeah, we kind of already knew there was something going on with a lot of them, but sex addiction and love addiction didn't, you know, it didn't happen. If you were a sex addict back in the 70s and you were acting out, you were either in San Francisco or New York or Miami and were a gay man, okay, because they were acting out and suffered immensely for it. And, of course, who's, you know, who's learning from that? <laughs> um, and if you were a porn addict, all right, you had to go get up out of your house, go into a store, buy a book. And now how fast can you look at, that, at those pages and get anything out of it? <laughs> I mean, really. Or it would come to your house in a, you know, in a paper bag thing. Nobody knew, right? What else arrives in paper? Anyway, so, you know, what are you going to do anything? <laughs> you got to keep turning the page. Internet comes along. Click, you can turn click, with one click, hand. Click, click, click. You can, you can put those images into your brain so fast. And you're, you know, all those neural pathways that we have that every time we do anything, we're either in an old neural pathway or creating a new one. If you're sitting there looking at internet pornography, every time you hit a new image, you click on a new image. So yes, Richard Spencer is on Substack. So how long will he last on Substack? I haven't seen anything that he said or done that would, would violate terms of service. So Richard Spencer has certainly adapted himself to the new situation. And he largely stays within the the Overton window these days. But uh, I would expect that uh, Substack is going to get some some pushback for having Richard on. A little bit more from Donna Beverly. This Lee. is what parents do. We you didn't cause it. We didn't cause it. Bad people caused it. Seriously, codependent people caused it. And honey, you're going to be okay. We aren't leaving your side. First thing, safety. She feels safe. Because the cops come in and says, don't worry, we're here. I, do you feel safe? <laughs> if you're a child, heavens no. The nurse comes in and says, you'll feel safe, you're going to be okay. You don't believe anybody. Right, nothing good happens in interactions with others, particularly interactions with women, until they feel safe. But if mommy and daddy come in and they say, honey, you're safe. I mean, did y'all just feel that? <laughs> you feel safe. Now you're not dysregulated. Now you can get back to the business of healing. You see? That's how important it is for when you're looking back on your own history to see how are those people acting? What was I thinking about myself? And the chat says, how long is too long to not fap? So I've been no fap for nine years. So 
I have not experienced any ill effects that I am aware of from nine years of no fap. Was I thinking that I was valuable? That my parents were also happy to have me there? Did they think I was the most valuable asset in their lives? Did they say to me and did they follow up, Honey, I am here for you. Whatever you need, I'm here. Understand there's another side of codependence, and it's the better than. <laughs> the better than has nothing to do with love and time and attention. The better and does uh, being no fap still work? Absolutely. There's a tremendous sense of confidence that I, I receive from being no fap. And there's greater clarity and greater self-control. So it helps me to interact with women in a better way because I'm no longer trying to use the interaction to store you know, erotic fuel for later. So I go through the day much more calmly, with more clarity, with more confidence, and with more strength. Better than has to do with, well, honey, you're better than everyone else. You don't have to go by the same rules. Yeah, I got a lot of that. I was raised with a lot of that. And it, you're better than everyone else. And uh, the chat says, well, 40 is an old guy with zero T. Look at this hair growth in just a few days of not shaving. This is not low T. I mean, you think these, these muscles are, are low T, bro? I mean, you think the hundreds of push-ups that I'm doing, I, I'm averaging 10 miles a day or so walking and biking. You think that's low T, bro? Come on, man. Come on, man. Those rules are for those people out there who need them. You don't. Yeah, that's kind of how, how I was raised. You're a Ford, right? You're, you're, you're better than everyone else. You're perfect. And then you as a child gets to control the family. Okay? That's a bad thing. Most of the time, that's not what people are here for. But sometimes it is. Because it's abusive to children. They grow up and what are they? Who wants to be around this? Anybody? Yeah, I, I was often told that my mother, when she was carrying me in her womb, she was convinced this one's going to do something special for God. And so I kind of grew up with this messianic complex that, that I was going to I was gonna do something special for God. And I did. I, I created live streams. <laughs> that would be called, I am acting like a love addict with you. I need you to be X, Y, or Z in order for me to be okay. <laughs> I need this to be off my head. Uh, so if I say, though, that I need a job so that I could support myself and my child, okay. That so how did I do it? How did I go nine years no fap? Well, I recognized that fapping was not benefiting my life. I recognized that it was kind of warping my life because I was creating all these erotic hits as I'd go through the day, and that would then warp my interactions with women. And it would also often lead me to looking at pornography, which did not serve me. So I recognized the, the downsides of fapping. And then very quickly, in the first week or so, I experienced the, the clarity, the strength, the self-respect, and the improved communication and interactions with women that comes from no fap. So I treasured the benefits. And then I did something else that was, that was crucial for my no fap conquest. I started talking about it. Now, I don't recommend that you necessarily start talking about it. But for me, because I'm just a weirdo, it wasn't too disconcerting for people when I talked about being no fap. But 
I got my ego involved in a good way. I started telling you know, almost everyone who had listened how I was no fap. And I started telling them about all the benefits that I was experiencing from being no fap. So my sense of self and my ego got involved. So it helped me to be highly incentivized to remain no fap and to preach the gospel of no fap. So a lot of difficult things I've been able to do by getting my ego involved and by talking it up, what I'm doing, and then not wanting to humiliate myself. It works. I need eight hours of sleep. Absolutely. You don't want to see me if I don't have it. I need to eat good food. Would I like somebody to tell me the truth? Yes. It's not my job if they do or not. Because I want to have boundaries. Boundaries is a system of self-containment. Here I am. Right? What's a boundary? You hear a lot of talk about boundaries. So what the heck is a boundary? And particularly early in addiction, you hear people talk about, oh, this is my boundary. That's my boundary. Or once you develop some recovery, you don't have to be constantly announcing your boundaries. They start to come naturally. So most effective, successful, happy people you know have strong boundaries and they, they can't be knocked off course by your whims. Self-contained. My stuff is inside. I'm going to decide what I leak out on you or I'll decide what I tell you or I'll decide how I act with you. That makes me have boundaries. That makes me self-contained. The other part is you. I keep your stuff out there. I don't need to take it on. Now, if you're a therapist and you don't have this. Right. So when people tell me bad things or distressing things, it, it doesn't bring me down. Uh, you can tell me about something horrific that happened happened to you. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. It just like brushes off me. I'm, I, I get a charge that you confided in me. Like I, I feel a bond with you. If you open up to me, then then I'm excited by by that connection that we formed. But I don't get burdened by other people's problems. You will burn out soon. If you're a nurse and you don't have this, you will burn out. If you're a teacher and you don't have this, you will burn out. Because when you're working with people, without this... Can one be isolated and a no-fapper? Yes. It's a lot harder, right? It's a, it would have been a lot harder for me if I wasn't announcing my, my no-fap status and providing like daily updates of the, the revelations that I was receiving through this newfound self-respect you know, inner strength and clarity from the no-fap life. Poop all day on you. <laughs> you don't want that. You know, people say, you know, it's like police officers. Can you imagine with no boundaries? Bad. Okay, boundaries, good. So J.F. Garapi has reflected on his his role with Internet Blood Sports. Low IQ individuals. I mean, it uh -oh, is well, working with such low IQ individuals. I mean, it is. I mean, is this number one? Come on, guys, get it together. Nope. Yeah, go to number one. Okay. Come because on, Internet Wolski Blood Sports should never be resurrected. People's the only person interested in getting at the. Okay, this reminds me of some old professor of Jewish literature I, I remember from years ago. He wrote this essay about how Jewish literature was dead, and he got all sorts of things confused in this literature because 
what was really going on was that this guy was moving on from from the scene. This guy was like in his late seventies or eighties. That he he was increasingly out of touch, and so all sorts of people like to proclaim phenomena that are you know ten thousand times more than they are. But they like to proclaim these phenomena, whether it's blood sports or American Jewish literature, as dead because they're no longer involved. So J.F. Garapi, you know, kind of like me, doesn't want the hassle and the bother of organizing blood sports. But there's nothing, there's no inherent reason why internet blood sports are dead. But J.F. proclaims the death of internet blood sports because he personally doesn't want to host them or participate in them anymore. Right, this is delusional. The truth is J.F. Everyone else involved is an absolute... No, I was not an orphan. I, I had a mother and a father, but my mother got cancer about my first birthday. And so uh, my father couldn't really look after me while he was taking care of his dying wife and taking care of my older brother and sister and his job as a theologian and preacher. So I essentially went into foster care with, with you know friends of the family for, for about uh, 18 months. So between between age three and age four and a half. I stayed with you know, a dozen different families. And then my dad remarried about six months after my mother died and we all reunited and went to England. And my father did his second PhD at Manchester University. So my dad remarried in something like December of 1970. So I would have been four and a half. Absolute clown. You're absolutely correct. Uh, I've never said it in those... I want you all, all to know this, okay? Our sa Saturday episode got the equivalent of two months worth of JF views <laughs> in one day. Yes! <laughs> yeah. right. and, and because you got that number of views doesn't mean that the, the content is, is superior. It, it may mean that it's uh, lower brow, right? It's easier to get uh, views to tabloid content than intellectual content. Jeff gets 1,000 views a video. He peaks at around 1,300. If he gets Coach Red Pill on or Dutton, he gets like 2,000. And, and in one day, we did more viewership than he does in a whole month on Odyssey. Yeah. Pays good to be a clown, JF. Yeah. Maybe you roll around shit with us some more money. Who has a little IQ butt? <laughs> Terms, but you're right on target. This is part of the reason why People who say we should reawaken the blood sports, they don't understand that I've carried the intellectual dynamics of the blood sports on my own shoulders. Okay, this is pure delusion. Uh, JF played a small role in internet blood sports, right? He wasn't the major force behind internet blood sports. He played a significant role, but still a small role. There would have been intellectual blood sports without JF Garupi, right? He played a role. He was a role player. He's like that reserve, you know, second baseman who's thrown into a starting lineup and the team, you know, wins the World Series. But JF was not the be-all and end-all of internet blood sports. He was a contributor, along with many other people, such as Sargon Avakad and Richard Spencer and uh, Baked Alaska and Andy Woski. It took place on Andy Worski's channel. Andy Worski employed JF. And then it completely Like, what bombed. a thing to say. I have carried the intellectual burden of the blood sports on my back for years. Like, 
get, get real, bro. You didn't do shit. No. Just the delusions of grandeur of how he's carried the intellectual weight of the world on his shoulders. <laughs> and he's just so salty. And he's, yeah, do you see this? He's so good. He's so bad at our views, dude. He's so bad. Oh, man. Among a pool of idiots. <laughs> okay, a pool of. It pays to be in the pool of idiots, everyone. So, does it does it bother you if the the pool of idiots get a thousand times more viewers and say income than you do? Right, I mean, JF in comparison to other live streamers, yeah, he he's an intellectual and he's smarter than them. But I don't think it's JF's the intellectual and everyone else are a bunch of idiots. The Kino Casino, let's fucking go. <laughs> it's oh. real good to be an idiot. Damn, oh, it feels good to be a retard. Yeah. <laughs> I know. He's, he's fucking losing his mind. Look at him here. He can't even believe that we destroy him every day. Like, it's so easy. <laughs> Complete incapable people. Incapable is so fucking good, dude. Yes. Yeah, we're so incapable, bro. The chances that this can stem back in any circumstance going forward are extremely low. It's That's not true. There's no inherent reason why there can't be compelling internet you know, blood sports going forward. This medium does not depend on JF Garrett P. It's like, it's like saying if Mookie Betts retires, there will be no more baseball. Or if, who's that guard for the Golden State Warriors uh, who's amazing with the three-point shooting? If, if that little guy retires, there will be no more pro basketball. It's absurd. The game is bigger than you are, right? There's no I in team. There is an I in internet blood sports, but there's no I in team. And IBS does not depend upon JF Garapi. Extremely low chance that the the context, the social context that led to this form. Seth, Seth Curry is the amazing god for the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors looking particularly dangerous this year. I, I just love their small team, like the, the death, the death team. When they just put essentially, you know, five guards on the floor. So I'm picking the Warriors to win the NBA championship this year. Math existing can ever happen again. Because That's absurd that, that internet blood sports uh, cannot happen again because JF isn't down with it. Because I don't know of anyone, including myself, who would want to carry that cross once more. <laughs> it is carry the cross. Yeah, it, it's high risk and, and high reward. It can go terribly wrong and it could be terribly aggravating for days afterward. Right, and people can get you know terribly upset with you, just like anything that's in the public eye. Right, the more prominent you are, right, there are more dramatic upsides and downsides. Carry the cross, cross, cross of making thousands of dollars and having fun. It's just <laughs> it is such a cross, Andy. I I could not ever carry that cross of just being a celebrity, making all the money, the viewers. It is. It is torture. Watch, he goes into clip two, he starts name dropping you. No, no, he doesn't. Just yeah, absolute yeah. torture to be, to be working. It was. So JF's on a similar trajectory to a lot of other distant right people. So I used to do a show with all sorts of people. Now I'm primarily doing solo shows. And Dennis Dow used to participate in, you know, groups of, of people doing a show and to the extent he live streams, I believe is primarily solo. Uh, Godwin, Godwin, Godwin's podcast, uh, Casey, he used to participate with other people. Now it's solo. And we were all far better off when we were participating with each other. 
but because uh, dissident right live streamers and live streamers in general tend to be antisocial, maladjusted, you know, dysregulated people, they have a very difficult time sustaining relations with others, including me. Like, I, I wish I had Dennis and Casey and, and Rustin and uh, Brundle and, you know, all, the whole gang, you know, back together again. But I, I haven't been able to pull it off. And it probably says something about me. It's probably some, you know, social, psychological, cultural, moral failure on my part that I haven't been able to maintain the group. But, uh, you know, all these live streamers used to be fun where they were part of a group. Now we've all gone our individualist ways and we're not nearly as compelling on our own as when we were bouncing off each other. It's torture, by the way. Yes, it was boring. It was miserable. Uh, JF is lazy. Um, I, I, I honestly think there's something wrong with him. I'd be like, this is going to get so much views, JF. He'd be like, no, no, not this stupid drama. I'm like, everyone on the internet's talking about it. We can make money and views. No, no, we're going to get all type on to talk to this guy about religion for the 1800th time. I'm like, that's not going to get views though. Why? Came with such low IQ individuals. I mean, it is. <clears throat> You'd have to pay me a lot. Now, I know that there's money to be done. In no, the... sorry. We get pa -pa 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 paid, not you, pa -pa 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 You're, you, We would have you on to insult you and then kick you off the show and laugh uh, and make you feel bad. But no, we're not going to pay you anything. You would reduce the show's quality by a lot. Substantially. But... The value of the show would be permanently tainted by JF appearing. <laughs> However, if JF could produce Wilshire Boulevard, perhaps we could let him come on for two, three minutes. Shows online in the online sphere. Uh, between the alt-right and, le and leftists. Now, if you remember during this time, Jean-Francois Guerape and I joined forces and I became a drug addict. And we would have these debates. And while we were, everyone was debating, I would turn my camera off and do coke. <laughs> while, while JF tried to get out the old straw. <laughs> oh, dude, I use a bill, bro. I use a bill straight up. The bill. Fuck the straw. Uh, anyway, so... JF and I, so he was very rude to me at, at, at many points. And I was really bored with the show eventually, right? It was, when there wasn't crazy guests on, it was just a, can we just, and he hated uh, drama and comedy. He hated funny and, and entertainment. He hates entertainment. He, he, he hated everything that made the show successful. Yes. This was the thing, like, he hated everything that actually made the show what it was. This is a sewer, a cultural disgrace. This is a toilet. <laughs> Let us get uh, Sargon on. Like, Sargon is the intellectual fucking sewer there, JF. Sargon <laughs> <laughs> is a black hole of knowledge. There's stuff to be had. Oh, but we have uh, Richard Spencer, the savior of Europa, here to tell Sargon he is not as smart as he thinks that he is. Ooh, the high mark of the show. No. The high mark of the show is Andy burning his nipples and then doing the handstand and the chair broke. That was the high water mark of Morsky Live when the chair broke and you fucking fell. That was the fucking, <laughs> like, the peak of the show. Like, let's get real. It was legendary. So, I end up one day, like, saying something to him, like, snarky. Like, dude, how about you chill the fuck out? He goes, oh, yeah? Well, I quit. And then he leaves. And then hops on his channel. And since we had a show that was basically based on the right, white, it was like, uh, uh, what was it called? The, the white ethno state and shit. Everyone joined the him. The ethno state. So I fell into a spiral. This is where it eventually made me quit coke, a, a coke. Fly to the States. Aim, aim happened. I make it back three years. Now I'm here, right? 
So he went on to do his show. It was called The Public Space because there was a, a meme with him going, oh, the public space, we're the public space. Right? <laughs> and then he ends up like smashing a retarded woman. This is not hyperbolic. This is a... A multiple retarded women. Oh, yeah. There's not just been one. There's many retarded... Okay. But you're That's... here now. What's up? Yeah, what's up? Um, so I was like watching a lot of the stuff that uh, you're doing. And the thing is, I know who Worski is. And I know oh, why hi. Worski is, right? It's kind of complicated, but we know why Worski is. Know why Medicare is. I don't know why PPP is. I'm not really interested in who he is, but, like, why is PPP? Like, what is PPP? That's, like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like, this guy came out of nowhere. Like, like he doesn't make, has, has he made some, like, amazing video that propelled him no. somewhere? Or what's no, going no. on? Like, no, none of that. He, um, on New Year's Eve, 20... 20- PPP is a talent. He's entertaining. He's a compelling personality. He's very good at what he does. That's why he gets views. He's, I want to say, yeah, it was New Year's Eve 2018. There was a site called StreamMe that I eventually matriculated to after I got banned from YouTube. And uh, they used to have a leader, leaderboard, and I'd win the contest every week. It's pretty nice, actually. Uh, and on New Year's Eve, he started a channel over there. It was kind of a no-holds, I mean, not no-holds barred, but, you know, kind of close to that, I guess, on yeah. Stream.me. He spread it. Driss says, look, you have an antagonistic edgelord thing going on where you should be more supportive of the gang. That's the problem. His, his asshole, he spread his ass cheeks open uh, on air on New Year's Eve. Um, and tw- right, so what type of person does that on, on a live stream, all right? That's not a happy, well-adjusted person at ease with himself, with other people who, you know, had, had loving uh, parents. 2018. Thank you, Pansy, by the way, for the coffee there. And um, he called into the show, I guess, a little time after. Um, there was some lore about how he fucked Kraut over. He didn't actually do that. We just said that on air to make Kraut look stupid. Um, and then he called in, and he was a faggot. And basically, I treated him as a loser and a bitch, and I would just not have him on because he sucked. And so, and he's just treacherous, I mean, which we'll talk about. But anyway, so then he decided to just be like a psychotic critic of mine pretty much just whatever he could yell and rant about every single day about me uh he would do Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how i guess he got his profile because there's always an audience for anti-ralph content basically uh and but he was particularly known as like psycho so is this this another guy that ralph made yeah Uh, no uh, ppp doesn't get his 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 audience because he's anti-ralph and there's just this you know enormous you know anti-ralph uh it should be there. easy to have streaming and audio. We're supposed to hear. Uh, well, anyways, um, if loud and clear, Sharia says, there are some people hearing us. I'm getting and it has disappeared today. It has disappeared today. Um, well, and gone from, this they Gab's have done to Richard Spencer Twitter? at some point, I believe. Pineapple Platypus says, how is Gab verified? Well, there you go. I mean, they, they are stuck in using the verification badge as a badge of status. And that's one thing that, um, that Elon Musk wants to fix. Refresh... Your browser now, most people have succeeded at getting audio that way. All right. Um, so, yeah, the, the Twitter blue badge has become a symbol of status and a symbol of leftism precisely because of this deverification. It's like, it's like Twitter didn't understand years ago that Gab was going to be associated with the right wing. Why would they have accepted then and not now? You, you've done further research. You now understand that Gab is not, uh, the success of Gab is not in your interest. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it shows that the people at Twitter are willing to use their power in, <coughs> in arbitrary ways. <coughs> One moment. Almost everyone uses their power in arbitrary ways. Right, this is all Mark, hype. Mark all Platt. hype. Um, what do you think? I'll start with you, Mark. Um, I think you might be. All hype said, I don't know if he knows all the nooks and crannies of this or whatever. I'm sure.
Whoops. You probably do know a little bit about what's going on here for sure. Uh, Fuentes versus Medicare, the uh, mega clash tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. What do you think? Well, I really like uh, Jim, and I really like Nick. I like both of them. I think they're both uh, great content creators. I think Jim's made some of the best videos I've ever had the pleasure of watching in the history of the internet. Uh, I think everyone's laughed at his uh, video, Piss Yourself to Own the Libs, and also his documentaries. I really liked his documentary on uh, uh, Wings of Redemption. That was particularly wondrous. And I think he's always been, to me, he's always been a good guy. I've always enjoyed his content. I'm not really sure how this sort of blew up, but I think Nick is obviously leading the biggest sort of nationalist group in America at the moment. He is doing great work. He's having great conferences. He's doing some really, really um, great, great work. And I don't know. I don't really want to see two people that I, I like going at it. I, I think that um, both of them have done. So I'm reading this book on the making of the atomic bomb, and it just seems apropos here. It's all about these like, unstable molecules you know colliding with each other and you know bursting into magnificent explosions right that's the that's the the distant right live streaming sphere really really good stuff and ultimately they're two people i'd like to see on the same side what do you think about that all hype i'll be honest i want to see nick just absolutely wreck and destroy medicare tonight uh i think his stream today we were going through it this morning i'm biased obviously <laughs> So I just, uh, you know, I think that goes without saying. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I want to see tonight. Well, I mean, I like obviously, like you're in it, and I think this is like a mo- like like this is clearly like mob dynamics going on. Uh, and I think the biggest sign of like the mob dynamics is the um, the rape allegation. I think that's like the biggest because like what you have is you have a woman telling a story, putting on the waterworks, and then like Medicare just believes. And and look, let's be frank about this. Like part of like one of the traits of like I guess the quote unquote right wing is like not believing claimed victims of stuff and just like sort of being skeptical and like seeing Medicare just kind of believe it based on words and waterworks um, makes me think something's different going on like about that that's basically my view view of this and like there's there's really it's really it really looks like there's a, there's a mobbing campaign and that's what i look at i'm also wondering if like I don't, I don't know part of like the conspiracy brain of me is like nick is doing this for like um to attract people to to cozy because he's building up a platform and pretty su- successfully i might add and i wonder if this is like kind of if he's kind of going all in on this just to like um not just for it, but like as a as a bonus to bring people over to his platform. Since this is kind of a cozy adjacent event, sort of thing. But that's my view on that. No, as a bonus that it's bringing people. Yeah, I mean, I could see that a little bit that this um, like big fights happen on cozy, right? Or you know, nobody gives a fuck. Um, but also, I don't know. I think I think the critiques he he made are kind of. Uh, cutting really just about the this, his whole entire style. Um, and then, like you said, of course, you brought up the fake rape ac- accusations they threw my way, how they hound everybody who comes on my show. They hound me when I go on other shows. I mean, clearly their goal, they talk about life ruination. Their Who's, goal they? To- Who's they? Who's they? Medicare, I, I quite frankly. Behind the time Medicare. I Medicare. know you that with Gator and Worski. Yeah, Medicare. But- Medicare, but I mean, they're involved too. I mean, he's pushing that. They're all in the same group now, basically. I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, they're all pushing that shit on Chemo Casino. Uh, Medicare is going on there, trumpeting that stuff, promoting their shit. Like, I mean, this is just a fact, right? So they're all running together, basically. Uh, and he personally uh, has trumpeted that bullshit, uh, the fake rape allegations. Uh, and just listen and believe for no other reason than, and it's not credible, by the way. And it's just listening to belief for no other reason than he's trying to fuck with me, right? And then he goes, oh, well, Ralph, why are you taking it so seriously? Why are you getting so upset? Okay, well, you know, 
that's a serious fucking thing, right? Uh, and some of these retards actually run with it and actually fucking believe that shit. I don't know. I mean, I can imagine that Jim himself believes that garbage. But, you know, when... So, Woski and PPP did like nine hours on on the uh, the Medica versus Nick Gamergate Fuentes 1.0. I started Gamergate. Oh, yeah. Get the facts, guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. We got to get I, all I the I love how Nick says this shit, and then he literally did a video crying about Dude. the right wing and how he was going to be yeah. the left wing now. Remember? Felt yeah. it. Felt it. Felt it. Remember when Baked was Yang Yang? Yang oh, Yang Yang Yang. Yeah, yeah. he made a rap. A Yang Gang yeah, rap? Was... He was Yang Yang, Universal Basic Income, super right wing. <laughs> I'm really amused. I'm using my amused voice, and then I was wait, like, wait, wait. clapping. Nick's culting so hard. Nick, just fucking eat a dick. Shut up, and you want to just do it. Say I would not get a pay. You need three of you faggots at once. Nick, you're so weak. You need three people. What a little bitch. Three people. Look at Nick Fuentes. Little bitch was like, guys, look at look at Nick. Look at little bitch. Why are you trying to fake laugh? I'm so amused. Look at you. I'm laughing. Such a little bitch. He's so sorry. You're flamenco. You were just saying what types of people condone that shit. Jim does. We just asked him about it, and he won't give a straight answer. There we go. I asked you about swatting fakes. No, why would I give straight answers? Felted. No, like the reality is, fake can't even get a win against. <laughs> That's how low baked is. Like, Flam has been getting shit on by Nick, Route, like everybody. Everybody gets their W against Flam. Yoba can't even get that. Yoba, like, but here's the thing is though, but you can't even debate that because baked is always the, an L. He, it's always an L. I mean, you may as well call this four on one because Flam is a complete liability. <laughs> even still, even still, Jeff is winning. Like handily. He's right. So there's a there's a saying that all the world loves a lover. It, it doesn't. But all the world loves is a good fight. There's nothing more compelling than a, than a good fight. Okay, Thomas Edsel has got a column today. Where does all the hate we feel come from? So the story of the 21st century is less a story about exponential population growth than it is a story about differential growth marked by a stark divide between the world's richest and poorest countries. So population pressures are blowing the top off a pot already boiling with poor governance, civil war, and environmental destruction. At best, there's only dim hope, for pe dim hope for a peaceful future. When the pot boils over, countries across the globe feel the effects in the form of refugees and terrorist extremism. So what we need to deal with this is more self-esteem, guys. If somebody asks you about yourself, make yourself know. You know... Okay, Donna Bevan Lee. Would be Love something you. like, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing in the extreme. <laughs> Take that out and say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing in moderation. How do I know what moderation is if I'm busy in extremes? I will tell you. Find one or two people. Sponsors are good. Therapists are good. Somebody in the world that you admire, that you think has a clue, you watch them and say, do their lives, how much drama do they have in their life? And even if they do have drama in their life, say something happens that, you know. Yeah, generally speaking, drama is, is the poor man's substitute for accomplishment. Drama and attention are the poor man's substitute for genuine connection and love. All right, back to the New York Times. So, 
We've got Viktor Orban's re-election to a fourth term April 3rd in Hungary. We've got Marine Le Pen's 41.5% showing in the April 24 French presidential election in the United States. Immigration has become a primary driver of the polarization between Republicans and Democrats, crucial to Donald Trump's election in 2016. Also crucial to Donald Trump's continuing leads in the poll, lead in the poll for the 2024 presidential nomination. So back in 2006, David Coleman, a professor of demography at Oxford, described what he called a third demographic transition in his book, Immigration and Ethnic Change in Low Fertility Countries. So a third demographic transition is underway in Europe and the United States. The ancestry of some national populations is being radically and permanently altered by high levels of immigration of persons from remote geographic origins or with a distinctive ethnic and racial ancestry, combination with persistent sub-replacement fertility and accelerated levels of emigration of the domestic population. So combine low fertility, high immigration, and you change the composition of national populations and the culture, physical appearance, the social experiences, and the self-perceived identity of the population. So British demographer Paul Morland told the BBC, the huge expansion in white populations that we previously took for granted is now retreating. So the West has been steadily retreating. Christendom has steadily been retreating in you know, worldwide numbers as percentage of the national population and in part in influence, right? Historically, majority white countries are becoming more diverse. We've got mass migration into Europe and America, changing the face of these continents. So if you look at the ethnic makeup of Trump voters and his slim electoral victory in 2016, it's clear he would not have been elected if America was less white. No, it's not clear because many Latinos and, and black men shifted into the Trump column in 2020. Uh, Brazil is not a white country, and yet it elected Jair Bolsonaro. So Africa is about to have a huge population explosion. By 2100, there will likely be seven times as many Africans as Europeans. The world is set to become much more African. Boy, this is going to be exciting. In the 2019 book, Human Tide, this demographer Paul Morland wrote, if the biggest global news story of the last 40 years has been China's economic growth, the biggest news story of the next 40 years will be Africa's population growth. So the continent as a whole in 1950 had less than half the population of Europe. Today, Africa's population is a third larger than Europe. By 2100, it's likely to have quadrupled again while Europe's population will have shrunk. So fertility rates in Europe and North America are below replacement levels among whites. Now, what about the psychological reaction to immigration? That varies across the electorate. So in a 2012 paper, Tracing the threads, how five moral concerns, especially purity, help explain cultural moral attitudes. You've got these academics led by Jonathan Haidt who argue individuals who view illegal immigrants as weakening the U.S. economy, social conservative position, might also fear that immigrants will bring in dangerous and polluting foreign elements, purity, and subvert American traditions and order authority. So for some people, immigration is akin to contamination. And immigration allows impure foreign elements into a sacred and pure American body politic. And those apprehensions about contamination drive their resistance to immigration, perhaps as much to legal as illegal. I think this is absolutely correct. And it's not just something unique to America. This is a long human tradition. So Jews, for example, there will be a tendency among many Jews to look askance at uh, converts because they are impurifying you know, our vital bodily fluids. 
So the stronger you value purity, the more discomfort you're going to have with contamination, the more discomfort you'll have with immigration. So 2014 book, Democracy and Other Governmental Systems. The authors develop a germ-related stress theory, psychological dimension of xenophobia, ethnocentrism, traditionalism, and authoritarianism joins to pathogen-linked threats. So individualism and liberalism, democracy, anti-authoritarianism, and women's rights and freedom found more commonly in countries with relatively low health-related hazard levels. So when health-related hazard levels rise or any hazard levels rise, you get less individualism, you get less liberalism, you get less democracy, you get more authoritarianism, and you get fewer gay and women's rights, and you get less freedom. When people are under threat, they are more interested in survival than they are in freedom. So in contemporary societies, you've got collectivists and individualists, and they differ in their view of the social structure of the society. So collectivists emphasize the boundary between in-group and out-group, which is how the majority of the world sees life, right? 90% of the world is collectivist. It's just that the largely Anglo-dominated portions of the West are individualist, but 90% of the world is collectivist, right? Most people do not view other people as primarily individuals. Most people primarily view other people as members of groups and react to them accordingly. So collectivists emphasize in-groups and out-groups. They are distrusting and unwilling to contact out-group members, generally speaking. Individualists make less distinction between in-groups and out-groups. They're more trusting of and show more willingness to contact out-groups. Also, we're talking about uncertainty avoidance. So collectivists and those who identify very strongly with their in-group tend to have un high uncertainty avoidance, right? That which is different, that which is uncertain is tremendously threatening, generally speaking, to say Central and Eastern Europeans, and those with high in-group identity. So there's this growing line of academic research that emphasizes the psychological motivations for disease avoidance, and this is shaping opposition to immigration. So over human evolutionary history, pathogens and infections have constituted a central threat to our species. So in addition to the physiological immune system, which fights infections once they enter our body, our species has also evolved psychological motivations to help us avoid coming into contact with infections in the first place. So these psychological mechanisms, you can call them the behavioral immune system. And they operate automatically at the unconscious level. They work through emotions of disgust, fear of disease, and they motivate people to respond with avoidance and distance taking in the face of potential infection risk. So the fear of disease may be a misperception, not based on reality, but it may well be a powerful psychological trait prompting, oh no, prejudicial judgments. Life happens, okay? So say their life is busy happening, happens to them, but they don't go spinning off. They're able to stay grounded. They know what they're feeling. They know what they're thinking. They know what they're doing. They know how they appear. Even if the world is spinning around them, they're like finding serenity amid the sea instead of trying to find a serene sea. There is no such thing. The sea is just wild. Find serenity there. So somebody that you know has this, 
and you bump up against not knowing, is this moderate or not? I don't know what normal is. If I have moderation issues, normal baffles me. Okay, if normal baffles you, just look to Luke Ford. 40 is the embodiment of normal. So in modern, diverse, and multicultural societies, facial birthmarks, which are a prominent mark of murderers, right? Murderers have far more facial tics and birthmarks and disfigurements than regular people. It's one of those things you're not allowed to study, but we really should be studying, like, what are the, what are the physiological, what are the giveaways that someone is, is more likely to be dangerous? If, if only nature had color-coded people so that we can kind of figure out who's more likely to be dangerous, who's more likely to be fast, who's more likely to be violent, who's more likely to be athletic, who's more likely to be cautious, who's more likely to be intelligent. If only, if only nature had color-coded people, it'd make things so much easier. Right, but facial birthmarks, physical disabilities, differences in skin color and ethnicity are subconsciously in misinterpreted, guys, as cues of potential infection risk with skepticism and distance taking as outcomes. Well, sometimes it's a misinterpretation and sometimes it's an accurate interpretation. Depends who you're talking about. So people vary in the sensitivity of their behavioral immune system. So on a one to 10, what is the sensitivity of your behavioral immune system? So some people are more prone to experience disgust in situations that involve potential risks, such as drinking from another person's water bottle. So have you seen the great academic paper, The Behavioral Immune System Shapes Political Intuitions, colon, Why and How Individual Differences in Disgust Sensitivity Underlie Opposition to Immigration? And who can forget that other academic paper, The Behavioral Immune System Shapes Partisan Preferences in Modern Democracies, Discussed Sensitivity Predicts Voting for Socially Conservative Parties. Right, these papers support the idea individuals are more likely to be skeptical toward immigration and to vote for socially conservative political parties that prioritize social conformity, order, and exclusionary policies toward outgroups and unfamiliar others. So someone with an elevated fear of pathogens Someone who has more or less translated that fear into opposition to immigration may view liberals who want to open the nation's doors as a threat to his health and to his life. So extreme behavioral expressions of prejudice against marginalized groups are morally motivated behaviors grounded in people's moral values and perceptions of moral violations. So we've got a 2021 paper here investigating the role of group-based morality and extreme behavioral expressions of prejudice. So this is why I love Thomas Edsel's columns. They're just packed filled with the latest and greatest academic research. So group-level moral concerns, loyalty, authority, and purity predict extreme behavioral expressions of prejudice even after controlling for political ideology. So what is the moral legitimization of violence? You have to look to the 2014 book, Virtuous Violence, hurting and killing to create, sustain, and and honor social relationships. So while violence is considered to be the essence of evil and the prototype of immorality, but if you examine a violent acts and practices across cultures throughout history, you see the opposite. People hurt and kill people when they feel that they ought to, when they feel that it is morally right, even obligatory, to be violent. 
So people are morally motivated to do violence, to create, to conduct, protect, redress, terminate, mourn social relationships with the victim or with others. So you can call this virtuous violence theory. Political conflict moves into the zone of morally justified violence when elected officials and candidates focus their campaigns on grievance. Now, the news media, for example, has been whipping up grievance on the part of, of blacks, of women, of, of gays, uh, transsexuals. And should we examine the role that uh, the news media has played in whipping up grievance among certain minority groups and then the astronomical rates of crime by some groups in this country? Maybe there's some connection between the amount of grievance that's been whipped up by the news media and by the academy and astronomical rates of violence by those groups. Populist political movements gain power by leveraging feelings of grievance. Well, so do left-wing political movements. All political movements gain power by leveraging feelings of grievance. All national groups, all groups have feelings of grievance, whether you're Jewish, Christian, black, gay, trans, Australian, right? Every group gains solidity and in-group identity and a sense of power by playing up to, to agree th their grievances. It, it can be invigorating. Now, if you overdo it, it can become destabilizing and weakening. But generally speaking, groups like to evoke past grievance because it increases your in-group identity. Rabbis will talk about you know, how Jews were oppressed, how Jews are oppressed now, how Jews were oppressed 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, because it whips up in-group identity. And it gives them more passionate and devoted people that they can then lead. But evoking past grievance often comes with a cost. It can make you, if your grievance is too intense, it can make you less happy and less effective. So a mild level of grievance probably serves you by giving you clearer in-group, out-group identities. But when you take your level of grievance too high, it makes you maladjusted to life. So evoking past grievance can be used to justify undemocratic means to gain political power, and it risks initiating a self-escalating cycle of interfactional political conflict. And then as conflicts escalate, so do the perils of grievance politics. Well, the most prominent examples of grievance politics have been by the news media on behalf of minority groups such as women, uh, gays, uh, blacks, to a lesser extent, uh, Latinos and Asians in America. Feelings of grievance lead people to feel licensed to abandon previous moral and procedural constraints. So that was the danger of Republicans proclaiming that the 2020 elections were fraudulent because then you remove all moral and procedural constraints from people. So abandoning moral rules such as adherence to democratic political tactics or prohibitions against violence can obviously ex cause explosive situations. Right, You can foster an increased willingness to condone undemocratic means to achieve desired ends up to and including violence. So partisan anger is associated with tolerance of cheating, lying, and voter suppression. But what is voter suppression? Asking people to have identification? That, that's an example, according to the media, the Academy of Voter Suppression. So politicians can give action to latent attitudes, and they can organize collective action or harness the power of the state. So Trump's supporters would have a latent tendency to oppose immigration. When Trump comes along and tells them we need to build a wall, that makes them think that immigration must really be a problem, and so this latent tendency is activated.
then the state starts building the wall aggressively enforcing immigration restrictions and that brings power and action to these otherwise latent tendencies so hostility to immigration seems to be tightly related to a person's larger worldview person that tends to be right-wing will also tend to have hostility to immigration person who's left-wing will tend to be more open people on the right according to many academics see the world as threatening and they're described as having a closed worldview so openness is strongly correlated with immigration attitudes openness strongly moderates the relationship between inflows of migrants into one's area and self-reported well-being of existing residents so openness captures the degree to which people are attracted by novel stimuli and entails a preference for variety and new experiences for people comparatively low on the personality trait of openness so that's one of the big five openness conscientiousness extroversion introversion neuroticism right, for people low on openness demographic change and all it entails from exposure to new cuisine music and amenities not to mention crime may be a daunting prospect for people with high scores on openness demographic change offers the potential for exciting new experiences so there's a new book open versus closed so partisan conflict is extended to cultural and lifestyle issues engaged citizens have organized themselves into parties by personality we call this dispositional sorting those with closed personality traits have moved into the republican column over the past few decades those with open traits have become democrats Open citizens now take their economic policy cues from trusted elites on the cultural left, while closed citizens adopt the positions of those on the cultural right. And so I'll just ask. I know that sounds really simple. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, you know, these are simple things that you can do. You can decide, I'm going to look for commonalities with everybody I see so that I'm not zinging myself around to determine where I fit in this world, where my value is. I'm going to stop saying I don't know. If somebody asks me, how do you feel? I will say, give me a minute. And then I'll go through and say, okay, so am I feeling some pain? Am I feeling fear? I am feeling alive and engaged. And uh, looking forward to getting on my exercise bike and watching the end of season five of Better Call Saul. So that's what I'm feeling right now. So there's a new collection of essays called A Research Agenda for Political Demography. And at one extreme in high and middle income countries, the most recent transition is to extremely low fertility and low mortality, leading to a shift in the composition of various age groups far more elderly than youth declining proportions of those in the middle age. The world's most developed countries' national goals of economic growth are more than 2%, a mismatch with shrinking populations. So the idea of infinitely expanding economies is rubbing up against demographic reality. Some states with low fertility immigration is eroding the advantages of long-time ethnic majorities. Political tensions are high. But we don't have historical examples of majority ethnic groups being displaced and there not being tremendous conflict and tragedy. Rising support for anti-immigrant far-right parties and populists, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, demonstrate the connection between demographics and politics. Lower-income countries' fertility remains high, but declining mortality means these populations are growing exponentially. So politics is about organizing 
fear. Democracies break down and republics dissolve when fear is used too often as a motivating tool, as a partisan issue. Issue now is whether the political system can begin to organize our fear of one another in a constructive fashion that resolves rather than exacerbates conflicts. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Happy Wednesday. It's depressing to say it out loud, but it's true. There's probably never been an institution in this country more thoroughly discredited than the field of, quote, public health is right now. At this point, it's almost impossible to take any of these people seriously. And that is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. We need credible public health authorities, but we don't have them. Actually, we do. They've done a, a decent job. They've been basically right. And when new information comes in, they change their minds and they're faced with a very difficult task. They have to simplify the situation so that uh, regular people with 100 IQs and below can grasp what's going on. In fact, after all we've seen, ask yourself, who would you be more likely to trust? Some guy selling discount timeshares in Cabo or a self-described epidemiologist appearing on MSNBC? It's not even close. The timeshare guy might be sleazy. Obviously, he is. But is he the one who shut your kid's school down for two years for no reason? Is he the one who forced you to take untested drugs that you didn't want? Is he the one who demanded you stay home in fear, even as he applauded unmasked BLM rioters torching buildings and cities? Okay, now it's been forced to take untested drugs. Vaccines were highly tested. Across America. No, he's not. The timeshare guy, whatever his obvious faults, didn't do any of that. The people in lab coats did it. And they were the exact people you're supposed to be able to trust. But you couldn't because they lied to you a lot. And they still are lying to you. Guess what? Everybody lies at times. Everybody has to deal with multiple incentives. If someone else was in Anthony Fauci's position, he would not have behaved that, that much differently. He would not have behaved that more admirably. Right? You obviously have to be a political type of person to achieve Anthony Fauci's level of power. Here's Tony Fauci from yesterday. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. We're out of the pandemic, says Fauci. And that means you are now free to transfer the hate that you once felt for your unvaccinated neighbors directly to Vladimir Putin. And by the way, please do, Dr. Fauci's orders. Okay, thank you. But wait a second. Even if you're one of the many people who has recognized for many months that the coronavirus pandemic was indeed over, and who hasn't known that? Since when did Tony Fauci come to the scene? We don't know. All right, we don't know the direction of the virus. All right, Fauci like other epidemiologists are doing the best they can in changing circumstances with often contradictory information. In conclusion, now the tape you just saw is from yesterday. Okay, but it was just last week, days ago, that this very same Tony Fauci was scolding a federal judge for daring to end the airline mask. Okay, this is a mandate without his express permission. In other words, just days ago, this pandemic was raging raging so intensely that you had to cover your insolent little face with a useless paper mask as a signifier of your terror and obedience. Those are the rules. Fauci demanded it. Watch. This is a public health issue. 
And for a court to come in, and if you look at the, the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are... Oh, so, yeah, we should just allow the, the government bureaucrats to make all these decisions. Right? There's no one who's no group that's always holy or always right, whether it's government bureaucrats, scientists, courts. Unequivocally, public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not, should not have been a court issue. No democracy here. This is public health. This is a CDC issue. Federal courts have no power. We'll tell you when you can have your freedoms back, peasant. That's what Fauci just said. And again, that was just last week. And now suddenly this same guy tells us that the dreaded pandemic that ruled our lives for two full years has just gone, disappeared without even a press release. Well, that's what the evidence seems to be right now. Let's get a little bit more Nick Fuentes versus Mr. Medica breakdown from Worski and PPP. Thanks so much. I'm having a lot of fun with this. Now I'm getting a little bit like, fucking Nick. This is too much Nick for one sitting, by the way. Right? Yeah, it's too you're much. You're spamming the same thing. Spam, spam, spam. Sorry, I'm sorry. You're shooting Hug me. Hug box. Hug box. Hug box. Sorry, I'm sorry. I can't hit good numbers. Hug box. Buy more bots. Is it working? I'm pressing the funny button. Oh, oh wait, wait. Let me try another one. Sweet. No, I'd say it's not working, Nick. Sweet. I've been listening to you for an hour Sweet. and I haven't laughed once. Sweet. Isn't that your thing? You're hollering. You're hollering, so, uh, Jim. Got you hollering. I got gator. him hollering. Back to yeah, gator. and off of back this subject. And off of this back subject. Gator. Back to right back, back on to track Ralph. to life ruination. Back to your fingers up Ralph's ass. Back to your fingers up Ralph's ass when you're smelling. I like how scared you are. And you're licking them around. And you're I licking love them how up. You are, Nick. And you're licking it Dude, up. This is a very oh, this is disgusting. Come on. Uh, Bell, is this is this I really like the time it. step? <laughs> Somebody I did this joke <laughs> on the Destiny stream. Somebody's like, You're Ethan Ralph. This is a joke. I it's like incoherent. It's just insane. It's just retarded. <laughs> I feel like I'm losing my mind right now, by the way, Chad. Oh, this is like fucking purgatory or something. Man. I apologize, Catholics. <laughs> purgatory is real and it's this stream. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and then Medicare comes in. That's a joke. You're gonna love me. Because you're all about Ethan Ralph. Get it? Oh, I hear silence. Everything that you, because everything that you tweet about. Nick, it's about so silent in here. Where, where is the last? It's silent. It's silent because I think oh, we should bring Ethan Ralph. Yeah, I mean, sticks in the hammer, right? He's he's supposed to be the guy into the occult. He's supposed to be the Satanist. But like compared to what Nick Fuentes has, has turned into, uh, sticks in the hammer is positively Christ-like. I mean, how can Nick Fuentes claim Christ is king and and speak this way? Ralph in the stream, well, I, so you guys can like yes, each other. Please. Is that the real Ralph in the We thing? can get live updates right here. We can Does just cut out the middle man. No, it doesn't. I guess if the link got leaked, so we have a few uh, randos. Wait, wait. Uh, Nick, are you acting as the middleman? Is that what you mean? No, I'm saying your Twitter is the middleman. We could cut that out. And we no, could no, you just Ralph. said bring Ethan. No, no. We could have Ralph Ethan say Ralph things, oh, and then you could just tell again. us what he said. We could bring Ralph in, and then you could just tell us what he said, because you're like the Ralph News Network. Okay, like, we stay here for his emotional. Oh, it's like when Ralph says apron. something, you could just be like, "Ralph just said this," and then we'll. Nick's all be brain like, is broken. It's funny because he called him a pig again. Get it? I don't. Imagine like living in his body and having his brain. That's purgatory. That's kind oh, of fucking fuck. scary. He did a juvenile name pop. Well, I don't see we'll Ralph. We'll but I see. I see baked. If you want me to drag him in. And this is the thing. Like he refused to allow. Jim to bring up that Ralph was going to smear Gator as a white nationalist, go to his hometown. He just refused to let that point. In. And Jim honestly should have just kept pressing him on it. Just kept pressing yeah. him on it. Yeah. And honestly, because uh, they would just make him look so bad. He used to defend that. Like, it's a shame that Nick was able to deflect that away. But at this point, Jim knows. Like, he's already felted these fuckers completely. So oh, yeah. Like, and by the way, the entire chat, I'm sure you guys have seen, has been knives. And I, I agree with you. I think there's like a bot in there that changes the name and puts the same knives. It has to be. It's up to you I wanted to come in earlier, so drag him in. 
Destiny, if you're still Destiny. listening, Destiny left a while ago because I, I waited Destiny. too long. If you're watching yeah, this, Destiny's in bed. Like, like you should have brought a bit. shit to do than this shit. Yeah. Again, I don't know if he's watching it still. Well, if he wants it, I'll bring and, him and in. Flamico, are you done? Have you made your point? I don't, I don't even. Michael, know next time when you see Destiny in the fucking call, you bring him in without even asking anyone. Okay, just a little heads up. Michael oh. brought me in here. Honestly, I, I can't thought, believe like, Flam like him treating Flam like his fucking stepson or some shit. You know. <laughs> okay. Let's get a little more Tucker here. Release. It is buried in the distant past, stricken from polite conversation like a bad starter marriage. We can all pretend it never happened. That was Tony Fauci's position yesterday in that PBS interview. And then today, we awoke to sunny skies on the East Coast in a brand new version of Tony Fauci. Because, in fact, Tony Fauci explained in yet another interview, this one to the Associated Press, that the coronavirus pandemic is not over. No, not at all. Instead, we're merely in what he called a different moment of the pandemic. But, Fauci emphasized with total self-confidence, not a hint of self-awareness, quote, by no means does that mean the pandemic is over. Following this? So yesterday it was over, today it's back on. That's America. Yeah, when people speak spontaneously, they frequently are less than coherent and they frequently contradict themselves. So I didn't know anyone else in Anthony Fauci's position who would have been, you know, that much better and sharper. I mean, the guy's like 85 years old, right? His public health establishment, making it up as they go along and yelling at you ceaselessly as they do. And as they have for years. Remember this clip from December when Joe Biden informed you gravely that you probably weren't going to make it through the long winter. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's here now and it's spreading and it's going to increase. For unvaccinated... We are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. For themselves, their families, and the hospital, they'll soon overwhelm. Severe illness and death for the unvaccinated. Ring around the rosy, all fall down. You're screwed, pal. Whoa, five months later, you look around, and honestly, it's hard to find a single pile of corpses in the street. What you see are a lot of... Pre- yeah, well, we've got, we've probably got three million dead Americans. Right. The academic consensus is about 3.5 times the official number of COVID deaths is probably more like the, the real number of deaths. We've had the first dramatic decline in average life expectancy in, in, since World War II. So, yeah, I think something real has, has happened. The, the COVID has been real. I have no idea of the future. But I think generally speaking, our elites, including our public health elites, did the best they could in a difficult situation. And... Uh, Overall, I think that they did better than average, and their their crowning achievement, in my view, was the fast creation, testing, and distribution of the vaccines. That's it for me. Bye-bye.